This week on an hour of flower, I'm joined by a man who's sort of famous in the laser in a way, been around for a long time, a coach and a sailor. I'm of course talking about John Emmett here at Rutland. How are you, John? I'm all right. I'd say I'm very, very much more a coach than a sailor these days. And you are right, I have been around for a very long time here at the Tiger Trophy. And it's amazing to think it was 25 years ago, uh, half my lifetime, that it doesn't seem that long ago. So, um, yeah, really special weekend. Yeah, it's a, a great event. I've done it a fair few times. And on a day like today when it's absolutely breezy and you're, you're going full speed in the laser, it's great fun. And you mentioned about your coaching. You're coaching at the Olympics just gone last year with Tula. And of course, you're still sailing. So let's start off with, we'll cover both bases, but let's start off with this event here at Rutland. After the first day, you're lying in fourth overall. How would you recap today's sailing for those that are not at this event? I mean, it was almost fresh to frightening. Um, my aim was to get around the course without sticking the mast in the water, which I did, so that was a, a major achievement. But the issue I have, because I spend so much time coaching, I don't actually do that much racing, and it can mean between the qualifiers that I could have almost six months of, of no high-level racing. So it's good to be doing the around-the-can stuff. And I enjoy the social aspect to see um, people from other classes that I know um, and I think it's good uh, to, to promote the laser to do a little bit of little bit of travelling. And this was a particularly breezy day, and it looks like we've got the same tomorrow. Yeah, whenever you look at the forecast on a day like today and tomorrow, you're sort of like, oh, is there going to be racing? And when I start off yesterday, I was there was not cancelled, so I came. Let's go racing, and it is fantastic. And I wasn't as fortunate as you. I missed a toe strap a few times, so that wasn't great. Well, I think, I think for me, it was probably more playing it safe rather than pushing it. Um, I'm also doing testing uh, for Typhoon, and I think it's probably a really good day to be testing to see if a wetsuit keeps you, keeps you warm or not. Um, but yeah, you do need to think as well. Forecasts are only uh, an estimate of what, what you're going to get. And now casts are so much better. You could see today with the black cloud coming down the course when the 40 knots was going to come through and you could see when there was blue sky and we were going to have lulls. Um, yeah, really pleased the race officer banged the races in because it's a, it's a tough call, but they made the right decision. Yeah, no, it was, it was one of the best days sailing I can remember. I think probably post-COVID, definitely the best day sailing I've had. You said you were sort of testing out some new Typhoon kit. What's your initial you know view well, of it well a lot of people said they were cold today <laughs> and I definitely wasn't cold so that's a, a step in the right direction and I think it really makes uh, winter sailing so much better I mean, when I first started sailing we were sailing in jeans and it's hard to describe but the buoyant shades looked like bubble wrap it was sort of a bright orange buoyant shade with little inflatable bubbles and when your buoyant shade got a bit too old the um, well, it had no, <laughs> no bubbles left in it. It probably wouldn't help you float, but I guess uh, only about 10% of your listeners will know what I'm talking about. So now the fact we can get changed outside the car in a dry robe and um, we have really high-quality gear means sailing, at least in the UK, it's got to be a 12-months-a-year sport if you really want it. Yeah, and especially when you come off the water and the showers here are nice and warm. Now, like I say, you've been in a laser for many years. What keeps you in the class and you haven't sort of gone to another class for a long period of time? I mean, there's lots of reasons for that. Um, when I was uh, younger, it was the affordability. 
Um, I did do um, Olympic campaigns in the 49er and the Tornado, but while I was a student, it was definitely the only boat um, that I had enough money to campaign. And, you know, well, you can't see this, it's a podcast, but I'm not a big man. <laughs> and obviously I didn't make it up to, to Ilka 7 or standard weight, uh, but I gave it a good go. Uh, did about seven, uh, seven years in that cycle. And I think for me as a coach, it's really important to have some empathy with the, the sailors. You know, when people have a black flag or a yellow flag, to understand what it feels like and actively racing myself, I think I probably got a good awareness um, of the physicality of the boat. Um, so we, we tend to do uh, sessions that are very high quality rather than long sessions with the full-time sailors. And the psychology, it's, it's really sad when a sailor's had a bad race to see the, the coach uh, also repeating the fact they've had a bad race, sometimes in a very loud voice. And I know that that doesn't help me and I don't think it would help the majority of sailors. But I think the root answer to the question is it just ticks every single box. The Ilka's absolutely unique that it's a junior class, it's a youth class, it's a club sailors class, it's a masters class and it's an Olympic class. Um, and I actually have some uh, involvement uh, to some extent with all of that. So it keeps me busy and I like to go sailing myself. Yeah, it's a, it's a class that literally has every aspect of sailing. You can learn in the boat and you can race at the Olympics in the boat. And you mentioned sort of about the Olympic coaching. How did you initially get involved in that? Was that straight after you realised that you weren't going to the games in a 49 or Tornado? Did you jump straight into coaching? <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, I was just in the right place at the, at the right time. Um, so for the, uh, the first Olympic cycle, um, 96, Ben Ainsley went and he was head and, head and shoulders uh, above all the other youths at the time. So um, that particularly with nationals, Ben was first, I was second, Paul Goodson was third, Ed White was fourth. So I was, I was Ben's training partner for the Youth Worlds and he was full-time sailing and he really made that, that jump. And uh, if anyone is looking for a role model, I think probably Ben's one of your, your top tips to get a Olympic medal at 19 years old and I went to university I was uh, pretty poor at language and art and things like that and very good at maths and science so I went off to be a chemical engineer and I didn't actually apply for job because um, I had a job working for, for Mars pedigree pet foods as a process engineer and just to get that job I think I had seven stages of interview like I had to go to assessment centres, group interviews, individual interviews, maths tests, all the rest of it. I thought my final year, I just want to, you know, make sure I get the, the best qualification, you know, best category of degree I can. So I didn't apply for my job, graduated in 2000, and I got a call to, um, uh, to be training partner for Shirley, um, because as again, it doesn't help on a podcast, but I'm more naturally suited uh, in terms of body weight to say the women's single-handed <laughs> class. Uh, so I was sort of perfect training uh, partner size uh, for Shirley um, and, and she won gold medal in Sydney. So I, I had quite a few offers for that. Um, I guess I've done a gradual transition over the, the last seven, well, it'll be eight Olympic Games from being training partner um, and spending a lot of time on the water and a little bit of coaching to mainly in the rib now, <laughs> but I do still coach from a from a laser when it's um, when it's useful. So probably the most successful Olympic campaign was gold in 2012. I guess that was somewhere in the middle that I did every single day of coaching from a laser, 
uh, to really push uh, Lily uh, because there wasn't people to push her from China, especially um, in the medium winds. Uh, she was significantly better than the other girls. And then with the uh, regattas, I was always in the rib. That now, as I said, I spend more, more and more days <laughs> in the rib. And like you said, you know, being the right size for a, for a women's rig boat, that actually, do you think that also gives you a bit of an edge on the other coaches where you're racing against these girls, you know, especially the British girls, so you know what they're racing like and, you know, you can put that into sort of the training you put out? I think it makes me slightly unique, not... Um, but it's something that has worked. So if you look at the, the Olympic gold medalist in 2016, it was the same scenario almost, uh, that Marit was uh, working with her brother Rioff and he did an awful lot of the coaching from a laser um, and then was in the rib for the, for the regattas and he now uh, was purely in a rib for, for 2020 or 2021. I don't know what to call it really. Um, but yeah, I think it gives me a little feel and also when things change, so we've just gone to a composite lower section with the radial or ILCA 6, by jumping in I have a good idea what it feels like and the issues. So personally as an old man, the biggest issue, especially on a day like today, is tacking with a, with a super low boot. But yeah, I, I enjoy it and I think uh, it's important for coaches to stay active within the sport so you have that, that feel. And with you're saying about the you know composite lower mast for those that maybe haven't made the switch or debating whether to do it, what are the differences and why should people get that rather than maybe an aluminium bottom section? Oh, the first thing I'm going to say is they, they stay straight. Yeah, <laughs> which means uh, you're not rolling through. That was always one of my largest worries. You you turn up to do a regatta, and whether you're going to pass mem- uh, measurement because your your lower section's got a very small bending. But then again, I would never recommend going to a, lo- a large or a porter regatta with kit that's untested because you could find that you've, you've got a sail or a, or a low mast or top mast that for whatever reason you, you don't like and there's a problem with. So I think it's just a step in the, in the right direction. And I think we really need to make sure we've got a composite boom as well because if the boom stayed a little bit straighter, then it'd be so much easier to, to get underneath. But the laser or Ilka class, it's a bit like a container ship because it's so big, over 100 countries sail it, which is obviously a great strength, it takes a long time to slow down or change directions. So yeah, hopefully these things will come in due course. We've got great control lines compared to when I first started sailing yeah. <laughs> and everybody's got the option for composite top mast. So these are, these are really good things. And also with uh, lots of builders. Uh, I think probably on average the, the build quality is going to go up as well. So yeah, I think the class is in a good place. Yeah, I think like you said, the build quality over those sort of manufacturers will keep pushing because they want to, you know, get more customers. And there's, the always, there's always teething problems when people first start manufacturing yeah. process. Um, but in the long term, there's that pressure on people to produce a good product because if you don't produce a good product... They'll go somewhere else. Yeah, people, <laughs> people yeah. won't buy it. So there we go. And, and you mentioned also about the composite that they, they stay straight. And I know from my experience from the top section is that I've not had to you know, buy another top section purely from the fact that it's bending or snapping. So Yeah, I mean, everything wears, and they will wear, but they will wear a lot better uh, than the old aluminium ones. And it actually means for the radial, 
or Ilka 6, you're getting the laugh curve that you're meant to get for the sale because you've got a uniform bend. And I really hope they put a composite for the uh, standard or Ilka 7 as well. I mean, that, that needs to happen. Um, and it's just a case of, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. But yeah, the glass has updated itself very slowly because it's sold in lots of countries and it gives people a chance to, to keep up. Yeah, you know, it'll probably eventually happen. Getting back to the sailing today, you know, it's a general handicap race and it, there's several lasers and ilkers out on the water today and, you know, all across the three rigs. You know, why do you think at these handicap events, the laser ilka always ends up being the, well, either the top or second best class in terms of the class rankings? I think... One of the things is lots and lots of people sail the boat, um, so you're likely to get a lot of good people sailing the boat just by law of averages. And I'm always tempted to say when we talk about Olympic classes, or indeed even America's Cup or whatever, like nearly all the best sailors seem to have come through um, Ilkas or lasers. And if you can sail the boat well, then it's almost like you can sail anything well because the key parts of sailing, uh, the sheeting and the steering and the under understanding boat trim and balance, they apply to absolutely everything you sail. And the people who come through the laser or the orca and don't perform well, they're not going to be as likely to perform as well in, in other classes. So if nothing else, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, training boat and it's part of you know that that stepping stone onto onto bigger things and for me i don't actually come here you know try to try and get a, a a trophy so to speak because i think obviously different classes are both optimized for different wind strengths i mean a day like today obviously suits a trapeze boat something which is going to plane upwind like a 505 um for very light winds you want something that's got a huge amount of sail area and is very easily overpowered but i you know i love love sailing my orca six and i think it's good for me to to do it as much as possible because when you train you need to train like you race so you can race like you train so if i keep on sailing the orca six, i will i will get better and i had very clear goals today uh which one was the main one was staying dry, <laughs> but tacking and starting and things like that. And you just accept some other boats will uh, uh, possibly prevail on the day. But generally speaking, um, you're, if you sail well, the handicap's pretty, pretty fair. But my love is the class racing. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And in the winter, I, I feel the Sail Juice series is fantastic for the simple reason that... Keeps you sailing. Yeah, it keeps you sailing and keeps you the motivation to go out there and go, OK... It's, it's three degrees. If I was back in Torquay, for example, I probably wouldn't go out. But there's an event here at Rutland, the safety boat's out, well-organised racing, the wind were marks in, into the wind. You know, you've got so many opportunities to actually practice that actually benefits when you come, the qualifiers in March, you're race ready and ready to go. Well, that, that's one of the things I want to... <laughs> I've done some racing, otherwise uh, I'm on a vertical learning curve or relearning <laughs> curve for the, for the March qualifiers with, with poor starts and, and first beats because I haven't done much decision-making practice. But I actually think at events like this, it's a really good opportunity to test things because uh, certainly for me, you, it, you push yourself so much better when it's a, a real race. Uh, so if you're going for a, a slight difference in technique, you know, slightly flatter sail or fuller sail or uh, tighter toe strap or looser toe strap or even you know testing out wetsuits for the for the grip upwind and downwind, 
when you're actually racing and you're pushing yourself, that's, that's when you can tell the difference. And that's why the full-time sailors will have performance regattas, but they will also have some training regattas to, to try out new, new techniques. And yeah, I think it's good to keep on racing because uh, it's a bit like fitness. It takes a long time to, to improve your fitness, but your fitness <laughs> disappears relatively quickly if you stop yeah. training. It is a good way of looking at it. Because I know, you know, myself, like I said, when you get to the qualifiers, you want to be race ready. And it gives you that little bit of edge on people who haven't done as much racing through the winter. And normally six races, one discard, you're, you know, you, you're not in a position to make too many mistakes. Yeah. So getting back to the Olympics this year, so the build-up, it was quite disjointed, delayed a year. Is it going to happen? I, I always it thought did. it was going to happen because Japan is a very good country for yeah. getting things done and I don't think they could uh, have had the loss of face of it not happening. And media tends to be very negative, I think maybe especially British media, just because unfortunately, for whatever reason, that's what sells stories. And you can look at the current stories that are in the press at the moment, they love telling the bad news stories. It was always going to happen, um, but it was never going to be easy. Yeah. No, I agree that the press is it's a lot easier to write something and have a moan and you can write in a lot more depth if something is bad than if something's positive because if something's positive quite often you go yeah that was really good and that's that's the end whereas if something's bad you, you go yeah I didn't like this and that's because of that and that's because of that and you can like, really elaborate on it it's like being a race officer everybody remembers when you cock up but mm. very few people come and tell you when you've done a good job <laughs> yeah something I'm very aware of uh, I'm thinking maybe that's my, my next step in my career <laughs> as it's getting uh, harder and harder to hike, but that's another story. Yeah, so the actual build-up, let's start with the actual disjointed year. It must have been a nervous time as a coach and, you know, Tula, sailor sort of, must have both been worried that other people might be getting an edge on, with different countries having regulations, some countries having better training partners you know, from different countries. Yeah, I mean, the Dutch, the Dutch had four fast girls and could sail all on their own, yeah. but if I go back a step... And especially in Finland, where half the year is freezing <laughs> snow cold and ice. snow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, an entire Olympic cycle, I only ever did uh, one week's coaching <laughs> in Finland, the, the Finnish nationals. Although, for COVID restrictions, I did have to fly via Finland to get to... Um, Lanzarote once, so I had the correct work papers to be in the EU, but that's, that's a slightly tangential story. But yeah, I didn't even know if we would go because Tula won the trials at the Melbourne Worlds and then everything changed. And so her intention was to uh, retire in September 2020. So that was a, uh, an interesting conversation. And I just said, and, and the head coach said the same, which was very nice that, you know, we will really support you if you want to do it, but you have to really want to to do it um, because it yeah you know you have your whole life planned in front and what she did she went back and she finished her degree and then we started campaigning again and that meant that now as we sit here she's in exactly the same situation as she would have been but she did the Olympics and the thesis in a in a different order but yeah the idea I think crikey originally the thesis was meant to be done before Christmas and then every camp there was uh, still a bit more and still a bit more and still a bit more and Tudor was an incredibly hard worker I know she did an amazing job but uh, yeah she had a lot of pressures on her to, to get that done and I think I learned an awful lot from travel I think it's actually a good thing 
uh, in COVID that we travelled less. We did longer training camps. Um, I think in terms of being environmentally friendly and just being time efficient, that's a good way to, to train. You know, we've got so much into the habit that we can jump on a plane, go somewhere Monday to Friday and then come back. And that's exactly what I did with um, Marit Baumister before the, the China Gates. I used to fly on a Monday out to Air and then fly back on a Friday. And after you know a couple of months of doing this, somebody came and sat next to me on the plane and they obviously did the same. They, they wondered what work I was doing. Right. And I said, well, I'm just, uh, I'm just going sailing. And, yeah. and Marit would have my rig uh, uh, all ready to go and I'd jump off a plane and we'd do five days hard training and then go back for the weekend. So yeah, it was difficult. We spent a lot of time um, looking at the regulations. I won't really talk about it now, but that's why we started Restart Sailing, just to try and help people restart sailing when it stopped and keep sailing because sailing is an amazing outdoor sport that's about as COVID friendly as you could get um, and it was it was strange like originally we would go to Portugal and then Portugal became a red country so we'd go to Lanzarote then Lanzarote went level four then we could go to Portugal but we did what we needed to do and it's hard to underestimate how determined the Olympic sailors are and we, we did it so yeah it was a very special games and I probably remember it far more than all the others because of that yeah and let's get on to the olympic games of course it was quite different i mean it was different <laughs> very weird. different yeah it was different watching it you know let alone you know when you're watching the sport and it there's no crowd and it doesn't feel the same did it feel still like an olympic games bef- like the previous ones you've been Crikey. to well every games well, i've been to is Different. And I, I guess I'm biased, but I have to say 2012 was the best one because the Brits just had everything organised. I mean, Rio is unbelievable. They put 20 boats on the ramp and the ramp broke. <laughs> the Olympic Games ramp broke in half because they never figured the entire fin fleet might try and launch at the same time. I mean, you couldn't make it up. Um, but Japan was perfect. I felt very at home because it reminds me a lot of Portland. You go over over a road, it's an island, it's a similar topography. And the Japanese did an amazing job, uh, but we were very isolated. So uh, you wore a mask the whole time. And normally um, people would have separate accommodation, but we had to, um, we had to have special accommodation and there wasn't enough beds um, at the Athlete Village for me, the Sailing Athlete Village. So when Carl Langford turned up, I, I moved out of my room and I moved into a hotel. But the problem was the hotels were still full of Japanese tourists. So to stay fully isolated, uh, the only way I could get to my room was up and down a fire escape, which I think I, think I was on the eighth floor. Um, Lots so of the, stairs to walk up there. Yeah, so first time I did it, I got up there and my little... Japanese guys, I was waiting there for about two minutes for her to, <laughs> to catch up. And she oh, it's very good on the legs. This. But that was my every day. So uh, we were completely tracked. Uh, we had a little app. Um, so if you met anybody um, you, and, and they had COVID or whatever, that would have pretty much been your games uh, over. Um, so I drove uh, from where I lived to the, um, to the sailing uh, venue first thing in the morning, did my PCR test, which I am so happy. It was just a case of spitting in a test tube, uh, which was uh, sort of about one centimetre of saliva as opposed to sticking things up your nose every day. Went to a team leader meeting. And then after that, drove back to the Athlete Village, did the debrief with Tula and drove home. So I, I probably spent two or three hours driving every day in my, in my little car. 
I was quite worried I was going to be breaking the rule because uh, I couldn't actually work out how to fill it up with um, <laughs> with fuel because everything, funny enough, is in Japanese. Yeah. And uh, the first time I went through a toll, the car started talking to me and I was just like, I hope that doesn't mean I've got a massive fine. I hope that just means I've gone through a toll. And I, my car did try and kill quite a few um, cyclists. Because uh, your, your car tried to kill them, yeah. or you tried to? Yeah, well, uh, they have uh, self sort of self steering cars. So if you're set at a traffic lights and you don't go, the car will beep at you and tell you to go. If you go too close to somebody, it will it will break. And if you stray out of the lines, it will stray back. So I didn't realise that the only way you stopped it doing that was to indicate. So I would try and overtake a cyclist. And being a nice chat, I will, and a cyclist, very bad cyclist, I will pull out. I don't know why I'm gesticulating with my hand. Yes, this, doesn't, yeah. this doesn't work very well <laughs> on the podcast. And the car would self-correct to go back within the white lines right. and try and, try and, try and kill and the... Yeah. yeah. But after a while... So did that just get you in the habit of trying to... It got to, to indicate. A whole, a whole lane to in, overtake them, or...? Yeah, well, yeah. it just taught me I definitely have to indicate in... Um, in Japan, but yeah, all these little things like spitting in a test tube and whatever, you know, it just becomes a habit. I mean, we wore our team uniform every day. You had an Olympic accreditation, which will allow you into some places and not. So my wife, uh, Lily, had a media accreditation. I had a coach's accreditation, which technically meant neither of us were allowed in any of the same places. And yeah, I, I think it was, a, it was a good experience. I don't know how much I should say on a podcast, but even arriving in the... Um, in Japan was pretty problematic because it was quite a long journey and Tula's father very kindly popped us into business class on the way out there so I had one or two beers or maybe more than one or two beers and then when the, we when you get there the, you have to do a PCR test uh, before you even get allowed in the country and unfortunately the girl from Mozambique did fail uh, and she was quarantined on the fifth floor of the athlete village which was the, the quarantine area but yeah, after a long flight of having a few beers, I just couldn't produce any saliva. <laughs> what so all? I was just blowing bubbles into the test tube. And you have these little rooms everywhere with pictures of lemons. Because if you look at lemon, it makes you saliva. But I, I had nothing. So I, I had a tiny drink of water. And of course, as soon as you do that, you have to wait another half an hour. And then this whole... Peep, whole uh, room full of people waiting for their results and, and one by one we were let off but I, I had a lot of war but I did eventually get through that and you, you meet all the other British people coming in because I came in with um, through the, the British Olympic system because I couldn't go into Finland so I had my uh, testing with uh, Randox who's all, all over the news at the moment and that meant that for the Masters Nationals every single day I had to do a PCR test because you need four PCR tests before you even get on the plane <laughs> and uh, post it I had to be put in a specific post box which was like a, an hour and a half away from Pevensey Bay um, before you could even even go but I don't know I, I mean my funniest memory I was next to the um, the, the, the equestrian guy because everybody goes through the same airport and then most people go off to the main athlete village which is amazing so they would just sort of ask what sport you're doing. So the question guy, again, doesn't work on a podcast, but he's doing yeah. his, he's doing his mime. John Todd's doing his mime for riding a horse. Yeah. And then the, uh, me trying to explain that I go sailing. 
And they said, cycling, no sailing, cycling, cycling. But the, I got taken to the, um, to the sailing village with uh, an entire bus, just for myself, and an entire uh, lorry, just for my two pieces of luggage. And yeah, I, my little hamster has been turning in my brain, working out whether I should say this or not. So maybe you'll delete it from the podcast or not. But I, I had quite a lot of water to drink to eventually get through my PCR test. Yeah. And from the, uh, the airport to the sailing village was almost two hours by yeah. coach. And I did quite need to go to the toilet. <laughs> and I thought, I really can't make uh, a mess of this, uh, of this coach. So I did go to the back because they've got CCT everywhere. And I did have to fill up one of my... <laughs> water bottles which was empty with shall we say warm apple juice (laughs) in a way that the driver couldn't see because otherwise I was going to have kidney failure and when I eventually checked in and got my Olympic accreditation and all the rest of it I realised I did leave that warm apple juice (laughs) at the back of the bus and considering I was the only one on it it would be very obvious that um that it came from me, and I, I hope it was found and disposed of. And I really <laughs> and hope. Drunk. <laughs> well, I hope some dehydrated sailor didn't think they had, they had hit the jackpot. But yeah, so when you talk about the Olympic Games, I and Tula did incredibly well. Um, going into final day, she was in uh, silver medal. Final well, day of fleet racing. Just on that story, you're drinking some water here, so I hope we don't have the no. same. <laughs> the well, same no, it seems very out of character. I'm much happier with beer, but. Uh, <laughs> Then I'll say things I really shouldn't say. And uh, <laughs> like you say about Tula, though, let's get back to actually saying. Yeah, that. I mean, you know, the medal race at the Wim of Art, you know, she was in silver medal position overall. And, but yeah, it's funny, in 10 years' time, the things I will remember is just being absolutely desperate, desperate for pee on a bus <laughs> and wearing a mask in nearly 100% humidity <laughs> and 30, yeah. <laughs> 30 degrees and all those, those little routines. And I've got to be honest. Um, I, I really missed the Finnish team. It was such a big high. I felt very low when I got back from the Olympics because very few people live their life on a four or in this case five year cycle for such a peak. And then you come back and you go to your little flat in Weymouth and sort of, oh, well that's, uh, that's over. But yeah. Tula was an amazing athlete. She did um, uh, fifth at the Olympic Games, fifth at the previous Olympic Games. And uh, at the end of that year, she was ranked fifth in the world and she was also fifth in the olympic test event so i think yeah we had a we had a good level and it was um you know it was really close we, we won uh, some regattas together which i really enjoyed and just now she's made it very difficult for me coaching everyone else because i'm aware of uh, the level of level professionalism um that that you need so yeah, no, I miss Miss Tula very much, and you never have so much contact time as a sailor and a coach. I spend much less time with my my wife, and it's true for people, uh, you know, with Monday to Friday jobs. We we yeah. literally, you know, stay in the same accommodation. So with Tula coming fifth a lot, you know, same as her previous Olympic Games, was she happy going away from the games? Uh, yeah, I think we did a we did a good job. I I missed the big celebration. So as as Tula came out of the water, she she was the um, the that was her retiring. As I said yeah. to you, she was wanted to retire Europe, so she got lifted out of the uh, of the water. I think I wasn't there on a boat, and everyone carried her in and all this. And I'm still there trying to hand back in my tracker and, <laughs> and do all my stuff in the rib. 
I mean, the uh, you know, you, you just can't imagine the pressures. You don't want to do anything that could give your athlete points to be mm-hmm. on the course area, not handy in your tracker, be where you should. Any of these that have, um, you couldn't have any uh, equipment that could tra- transmit signals. So it's really strange not having a mobile phone or oh, that. That data, I mean, one of my most important tasks, um, and I mean this literally as as well as uh, psychologically, was to keep Tula cool. Right. So I spent a lot of time working out. I got through twelve kilos of ice a day. How much ice and when to put it in, so that I could pour the coldest possible water over my athlete's head right. the moment she finished sailing yeah. without dumping ice cubes on her head. Right. Okay. Because the heat, the heat, and especially the humidity, made it really. So that's difficult. where your maths and science back from university. Yeah, five years. Came five years <laughs> of chemical engineering. Uh, comes into the fact that I know how much, uh, how quickly ice can weigh, and and you want you know drinks that are not actually freezing because it, it creates problems. But those, all those little things, they're really important for an athlete so they can just do what they want. And I should probably do a shout out to Lena, who's just a, another lovely individual. We had a really good closing uh, working relationship between Norway and Finland, and that's carrying on now uh, with Monica and Lena. And the boys, it was the same. So every day somebody was doing well. Uh, the Finnish uh, standard sailor, uh, Ilka 7 sailor Carla, uh, was uh, gold at one point, um, as was the Norwegian sailor, uh, Lena. She was in gold medal position at one point, and uh, Tula was in silver medal position, and actually the Norwegian Ilka 7 sailor finished in bronze. So every single day, somebody from our little group was having a having a good day and we were right there a fact I should have checked this before I sat down to have an interview but I think um, I, I think they were probably the most or one of the most successful working groups we had all our and it's, it's a good race. morale boost as well when you see somebody else in your team doing well it's uh, well definitely. that's why I'm such a believer in the squad system and working well and sharing information and that having an open dialogue because if you work with somebody of course there's a chance they will beat you especially if you're working people from the same country only one person gets to go but the harder you work the more likely that you will do better and whoever's the best in your group will do really well I mean both well all four of the athletes were, were medal potential and I wouldn't have been at all surprised if we had picked up um, two and actually Tula was very happy uh, the silver uh, went to um, Sweden yeah. <laughs> so another, another Scandinavian country so quite good for Scandinavians in general really, considering that they probably in terms of their location probably were hit quite hard with Covid not being able to well, sail day to day they punch so far above their body weight I mean I don't know exactly but um, you know Finland Norway Sweden they're sort of six seven eight million people something like that I mean, that's, that's smaller than just London. Uh, well, the UK is 10 you, times When the you size. look at the size across sports, you know, you look in, for instance, like Formula One, Finland has always done well with such a limited amount of people, like you said, coming from that country. Actually, a random, uh, very random, if people want a good book to read, um, Aki, who is the doctor um, for all of the Formula One, he's a Finnish guy. He has some really, really useful stuff that would help people with their campaigning. But the, the Finnish mentality, I found it very easy to work with because you can be so direct. It's just such a breath of fresh air. In fact, Tula would initially tell me off for trying to be too nice. I'd say, well, you had a good start, but you went the wrong way. 
because there was more pressure on the other side or whatever it was. And she's like, you don't need to tell me I had a good start. I know I had a good start. Just tell me what you need. So I'm a bit worried I'm going to get myself in trouble working, uh, working with the Brits or whatever now, <laughs> that I'm a bit too direct and, uh, and damage some fragile so egos. What are your plans now that you've finished that last campaign, Tudor's has retired? What sort of your plans now moving forward? Well, the first thing, I'm trying really hard to put something back into club sailing because I think there's um, a really good opportunity when you coach people from the beginning of their careers to get them into fantastic habits. Uh, there's obviously somebody going around telling laser sailors uh, to flick their main sheet in the middle of the jibe and then five years later it's an absolute habit and then they end up every so often putting it around the boom which is almost race over and those things it makes such a difference to get into good habits I mean if your um, uh, main sheet doesn't cross uh, your tiller extension in light winds that's a technique issue and you need to get into that big roll tax right at the beginning so I've been working with the uh, Ilka UK the open open training and that's been really nice that's like a busman's holiday I felt like a really good coach because everyone improves so much in two days uh, as opposed to working with the Olympic uh, the top site you can work for two weeks and you can end up slightly worse than you started just because everybody got tired or you tried new things which didn't work um, I'm going to be in Parma. Um, I'm looking forward to doing that. One of my favourite venues. And I think because of the cancellations with COVID, this will be the longest time I haven't been to Parma in 30 years. So, yeah, really looking forward to getting out there and back on the circuit because it's scary to think 2023, it will be 18 months roughly to Olympic Games. Yeah, no, it, it's a very short cycle when you look at it now. It's I feel the pressure. This should be yeah. a quiet year, but actually it can't afford to be too quiet. Yeah, and like you said, it's been a, a long wait since Palmer. I mean, Palmer 2020 was when it all kicked off sort of thing. I, I remember Elliot was out in Palmer at the time, I remember. The rush and, back. <laughs> and he was sort of saying, yeah, I think we're going to stay out here and just do some training. And then that quickly changed a day later. I remember Lorenzo was getting on a plane, apparently got a message and then walked off the plane. <laughs> and then we were supposed to get a ferry and then the country went into lockdown. So it's like, well... well I, I, was in, I was in China in, um, <laughs> in 2019 when it all started, but people didn't know yeah. about it. In fact, I actually flew to Australia on, um, on New Year's Day and... Yeah, when it all kicked off, I, I didn't know what was, what was going on because I was walking across the road and my mate elbowed me in the, um, in the ribs. I was thinking, that's not, that's not particularly friendly. Yeah. Um, but that suddenly became the, uh, the new greeting. So you, and you definitely weren't case zero then? I was not case zero. No, yeah. I felt I upset a Chinese friend of mine when she did come over uh, about two, three weeks later that I suggested to Tula that she should just keep a little bit of distance from her. And unfortunately, being old and deaf, my, my Chinese friend, uh, but yeah, you, you didn't know. And, and for some athletes, it could have been um, potentially career-ending. I said in Australia, that was, our, that was our Olympic trials. We packed up the container. Container was on its way to Japan. And then it decided to go for a little holiday in... Uh, I guess it was Rotterdam because we weren't sure when it went. And if you look at people like um, Martina Grail um, from Brazil, you know, they sent their container to Japan with all their best equipment and it was locked up there for uh, 12 months and that made it, their campaign really difficult because they were basically tr uh, doing all their racing now with a training boat. And that's why the Ilka is so good because 
more or less anywhere you go you can charter a boat charter a rib and, and crack on I think that's where the IQ foil and the kite surfing is really good that those tiny countries you know little island nations they can do it because you can just pick up um, your equipment put it on a plane and go to wherever you're going you know it's 20 kilos bag lasers ilkas we're, we're pretty much the next best thing you can get hold of one really easy if you had something more complex like your, your 470 or your niner your fin or whatever you're, you're doing containers all around the place and I don't know exactly but I think the RYA had 12 12 containers at the Olympics they right. take they seem to have an awful lot of the um, the boat park and of course they do yeah they do an amazing job and it's no surprise they get the number of medals they, they, they do, do. And, and I'm very happy for them I, it was quite nice in a way uh, with the um, Ilka 6 and Ilka 7 that uh, our team weren't actually in competition as it were with the GBR sailors yeah. with the points going into it so I have no no conflict of interest no. I watched um, <coughs> I watched the big whatever they called it Super Tuesday when Brits won lots of medals yeah. and I was sat between the uh, the Brits on my left hand side and the Kiwis on my right hand side when they had that 49er medal showdown yeah. so that was uh, that was quite interesting no, that, that was fantastic I know everybody watching that I think that was the best sort of sailing race that people can you know it's a moment where people can go that was an incredible moment for sailing. I, I will always remember it, but I was trying to talk to Emma Wilson and wearing a mask, I, I uh, well, I think she could hear what I was saying, but I was, I was struggling to uh, tell. But I, I stayed right to the end of the, the games um, because I think it was important for the team to have support. Otherwise, the poor Nacra sailors would be sat there going, we have, no, we have nobody to watch us race. And also somebody to help pack up the um, the containers. Yeah. Like sort of first drive, last leave, and yeah, I will remember um, that games for forever. And to all the young aspirational sailors, you know, I've got to say, there's nothing else quite like it, and it's a really, really worthwhile thing to think about. But also just enjoy the journey. You'll learn so much, not just about sailing, but about life from campaigning. And only one person uh, per country does get to go. But everybody can have a fantastic journey. Yeah, and sort of going back to your own sailing, like say you do more coaching than sailing, what sort of your plans for this coming season? Are you got the national state you know, print in your diary at the moment? Is yeah, that... well, hope, hopefully, if nothing else, I'll be there interviewing the winners. Um, that's, that's always interesting. Well, hopefully, yeah, sailing as well. Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, I think I probably need to lose about four kilos of body fat, which seems to have crept up since um, <laughs> since Lily's been away. She might see me at the airport and then uh, turn around and go, <laughs> go away again. Um, but yeah, I'm going to try and do the Masters Worlds in Mexico, um, and that should be that should be a good one. And then, in terms of coaching, believe it or not, the Ilka Six Worlds, the Senior Worlds, is meant to be in China. So. Right. I would guess that's still pretty uncertain, but yeah, yeah. I think... Well, the, the Olympics are going on at the moment in China, so... But with very... A lot, a lot of restrictions. Very strict, um, very, yeah, as you say, a lot yeah. of restrictions. And I don't know, but I would speculate for the Chinese, it's probably more important that the Beijing Olympic Games goes ahead than the Ilka Six Worlds. Yeah, no, I, I think... Might be it higher would, priority. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. So that's the intention. Hopefully that goes ahead. And uh, we'll see you at the qualifiers in March then. Yep, yeah, no, I'll be there. And please, you know, people do who are new to fleet, 
please come and say hello and I, I might be able to, to help you out. And yeah, I'm going to be here for long term. Nobody's going to employ me as a chemical engineer <laughs> anymore, Floz. So uh, yeah. yeah, and I wouldn't really have it any other way. Uh, that's ideal. Well, thanks that, John. And best of luck tomorrow racing. Hopefully you don't do too well. I can beat you <laughs> another, on another race. But uh, yeah, that's it for now.